Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. I suspect you need a bit of a respite from all the troubling stories that we're being bombarded with on the news. So since fall has arrived, we thought that we would ask Pete Morosky to make a return visit to our show with some gardening tips. Pete Morosky is an environmentalist and nurseryman and the owner of Native Landscapes and Garden Center in Pauling, New York. And we also would love to hear from you. So give us a call with your gardening questions, uh, whether it's um, an outdoor garden or whether it's something uh, in your in your home, your apartment. Um, our number is 212. 212- 209-2877. That's 212-209-2877. Welcome back to our show, Pete. Thank you, Leonard. It's great to be back. The summer was dry and warm. In fact, the sixth warmest summer on record. Isn't that a good thing for gardening? It is, Leonard. And if you remember a couple of years back and last year in particular, it was a very wet cool summer and a lot of the vegetable gardeners and farmers were complaining that a lot of their vegetables and crops weren't getting enough sun so this summer we had a nice warm summer which means that a lot of the gardeners and a lot of the farmers were able to control the water and once that puts the farmers and the gardeners in control of the water the success rate goes way up but we did have two tropical storms this summer isn't the st- uh, tropical storm season still far from over? Although we, uh, <laughs> we're, we're already up to naming the last one Gamma, aren't we? Or Gamma Delta? I guess we we're went- up to Delta. <laughs> and now, and now, uh, now we're, we're we're into even more storms. I mean, as we speak, uh, there's a, a very big storm heading into the Gulf Gulf of Mexico and. As many of us know, the Gulf of Mexico this time of year is like a, a bath, like bath water. So once these storms with the right dynamics get into the Gulf, they explode. And once again, you know, it's got its bullseye on the Gulf Coast of the United States. And uh, this one's going to be a big one. This one's going to be a Category 4 storm when it hits. And uh, it's going to rush inland and, and, and head up the coast. And, uh, you know, it's going to be bad news for the Gulf Coast people, but it's going to be good news for us because up here in the Northeast, we need the rain. On the other hand, uh, the last major tropical storm this summer left a lot of tree damage in our area because it tracked to our west and then kicked the wind way up. Weren't the trees already under stress from the extreme dry conditions that were in place when the, the high winds hit? Uh, they were, Leonard, and you know, a, a couple of things came together to make this a very, very bad storm. And as many of us know, we were out of power for, in some cases, two to three weeks. What had happened with this particular storm is it took a track up to our west. Now, whenever a, a powerful storm does that, you know, the east side of these storms tend to be the windiest part of the storm, uh, and, and this was no exception to the rule. Uh, this storm came up uh, west of the Hudson. And east of the Hudson, where we're located uh, in Dutchess County, or even down, you know, into Long Island and, and 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 Western Connecticut, created a lot of storm damage. And as you said, Leonard, a lot of the trees were already stressed out. And well, you know, whenever you get a real dry summer like we had, uh, without a lot of groundwater, the trees tend to get very brittle. So what happened this year is when these 60, 70 mile an hour winds hit. Uh, there were there were tree debris flying all over the place, and you know, 
you got to feel for the power companies a little bit because they were inundated and devastated, and it took bringing power companies from all over the country to the Northeast to bring our power back within a week or two. In fact, we had a problem on this show because uh, power went out in the middle of one of my programs. It Suddenly, was a- you know, I'm broadcasting uh, from my home and I have a computer in front of me and suddenly the computer went blank and uh, it was obvious that I was off the air. Uh, well, we were, I was able to uh, to restore the uh, the electricity with a generator, but uh, a lot of people suffered for days and days as a result. Uh, I don't know uh, what our listeners, uh, how that affected our listeners and and uh, especially the ones who wanted want to talk about gardening. And by the way, our number here is 212-209-2877 if you'd like to join the discussion. Um, and then uh, after all of the, what we've been discussing, uh, it came to an end because much of our area had an early season killing frost with three nights that went down into the 20s in late September. Um, it, it, is this crazier than usual, or is this just just seem crazier because so many other incredible things are going on right now? Well, you know, these things do happen every once in a while. I mean, you know, our climate is changing, as we all know, and uh, I have a bit of a background in meteorology. I remember Joe DeLeo telling us in climatology that whenever you get extremes in the weather, like uh, a hot dry summer like we had, and then all of a sudden that goes away, and you get three nights in late September that uh, that get down into the mid-20s that basically stop the growing season north of New York City. But it did another incredible thing, too, Leonard. It really started the fall foliage. Now, as we all know, this time of year, you know, the shortness of days creates uh, color in, in the landscape, but when you get uh, a, a real cold spell, like three or four or five days of temperatures that dropped in some cases down to 23 and 25 degrees, that really triggers the trees to go into dormancy. And uh, when it happens overnight like that, the color gets brilliant. I mean, uh, it's, it, it was just, you know, up, up in the Hudson Valley where we are, that that uh, early, early October, late September color was, uh, and the maples are always the first one to go. The sugar maples just turned a brilliant bright orange and red, and the mountains started going, and uh, it was a real, real great color this year, especially to our north. Some of the areas well well up to the north, I, I, was happen, I happened to be lucky enough to take a trip up to what's uh, called the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont and the Great North Woods of New Hampshire back uh, late September, early October. And they had uh, a spectacular color, which they always do this time of year. Uh, but they were extremely dry, too. Some of these big rivers that are usually running crazy this time of year were down to a trickle. And they were, uh, they were, they were uh, you know, there was a lot of fire danger warnings out up, up in New Hampshire. So, you know, we really got to be careful with open fires and, and, and our woods are tender dry. So, you know, we got to be careful with open fires and, and, and any, any kind of uh, open flame right now uh, in the landscape. But it's unlikely that we would ever have to deal with something that similar to what uh, they're experiencing on the West Coast. Well, you know, uh, yes and no, Leonard. I don't know. Uh, you know, uh, back when I was, uh, uh, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, when it was also dry back then, uh, you know, the Pine Barrens of Long Island tend to get dry like that. And, 
you know, they tend to get uh, forest fires out on eastern Long Island, uh, which is, believe it or not, part of the ecosystem out there. A lot of the Pinus rigida, which grow native to the barrier islands and out on eastern Long Island, need fire to open up their cones and regenerate the forest, uh, you know, as part of their ecosystem. You know, it does happen uh, on the East Coast. It doesn't happen to the scale that it happens on the West Coast because, you know, we have a much wetter climate than, than on the West Coast. But, you know, what's happening on the West Coast right now is just unbelievable. You know, they've never had fires like this, and there's no rain in sight. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a very tough situation for our, for our friends out uh, in California, Oregon, and Washington. Well, since weather tends to travel from west to east, I'm surprised they don't get more rain uh, because of the Pacific Ocean. Yeah, you know, uh, the Pacific, you know, has a lot of different currents that come off of the South Pacific. You know, they have what's called a monsoon season. You know, they're, they're set up a little bit different than we are, where most of their rain comes in, uh, you know, a two to three month period in, in, in late fall and, and early winter, where, you know, the way, our, the way the jet stream is set up, it tends to dip a little bit more in the center of the country where, you know, this time of year, uh, the jet stream is able to grab a little moisture out of the Gulf course, uh, out, of the Gulf, out of the Gulf of Mexico, similar to what it's doing now with that hurricane that's coming up through the Yucatan. Mm -hmm. And it just, it, 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 these things explode and they crawl up the East Coast and we, you know, we all know the devastation that gets done. And, you know, Sandy, one of the worst tropical storms ever to hit our area, was an October storm uh, way back when. So let's talk now a bit about gardening in this environment. Uh, and a reminder that if uh, you, our listeners, want to join this conversation, the number is 212-209-2877. You have any question about your the gardening in your apartment or in your on your property you may have um, the the farmers almanac recommends waiting to cut down plants with interesting seed heads because birds feed on them um, and wild birds prefer them to bird feeders uh, how much do you recommend that we leave standing through the winter well i say we leave most if not all of it you know, we got to understand if you know if we're going to mimic nature and keep our wildlife going, uh, we got to kind of go with the flow and go with the rhythms of nature. And one of the things we got to think about doing is, you know, a lot of people, especially up here in areas where there's a little bit more open space, tend to want to mow their meadows and grass real short this time of year. But you know, that's not the whole ecological, uh, you know, thing of, of, of what we want to do in, 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 our, uh, in our landscape. We want to keep the meadows up because leaving the meadows high this time of year leaves the seed heads and a lot of the uh, chickadees and, and the cardinals and the blue jays who overwinter our area eat these seed heads. And, you know, not everybody out there uh, feeds the birds. So, you know, in, in, in a lot of areas where they're not able to supplement their uh, diet on, on, on bird feeders, you know, they're getting the natural uh, seeds out of a lot of the field and meadows and, and, and in our garden. And that's another reason, Leonard, why it's so important to go with this native plant concept. Because over the 10, 15,000 years that plants, animals, and insects have been working with each other as a team uh, to, to, to promote each other's health and vigor, you know, a lot of these birds and insects depend 
on, on, the, on the particular chemistry that exists in a lot of these seeds and a lot of these berries. And I know I've mentioned this before in your show, you know, the Cornus rasmosa. Here's a great twig dogwood that's a shrub that grows in just about any field from Georgia to Maine. And this little berry is so loaded with protein and fat that many of our migrating birds depend on, on, on this berry. And, and, and literally, if it wasn't for this berry, many of our migrating birds wouldn't make it across the Chesapeake Bay. And that's a fact. And you can ask Douglas uh, who, who wrote a book about a lot, a lot of this stuff, will tell you. Hi, Reggie. Bringing nature home. We uh, are talking with Pete Morosky, who is a, an environmentalist and nursery, nursery man, owner of Native Landscapes and Garden Center in Pauling, New York, and inviting your calls to 212-209-2877. And uh, let's take a call. Hi, BAI, you're on the air. Hello. Yes, hi, you're on the air. Hi, uh, my question, uh, I have two questions. One is how late can I plant uh, in my um, front garden? How you late? Know, you're sealing a question I was going to ask later, but I'm glad you're asking it now. <clears throat> yes. Okay, well, yeah, uh, a couple of things. You know, when you say how late can you plant in your front garden, um, do you have anything in specific you'd like to plant in your garden before winter? Uh, I, I have this, uh, this hole that's been created by the, the deer or somebody who uh, have eaten the green in the front, and I have to... Um, replant it and uh, the reason i'm asking how late can i wait is the shrubbery um and things are cheaper later um because they need to sell them before the closeout right well uh, to answer your question um you can plant right up to when the ground freezes now, uh, that depends on where you're located, you know, up here in the Hudson Valley, you know, about 60 miles north of the city where I'm located, you, that usually happens sometime between Thanksgiving and Christmas uh, when the ground freezes. You know, New York City south, sometimes the ground never freezes, and there are some years where you can plant right through the winter. But I'm as long Scarsdale. as the ground is workable and not too wet, you can plant at any time. He's in Scarsdale. Scarsdale. Oh, Scarsdale? Yeah, then you're looking right around the holidays, uh, right around the end of, uh, end of December, the beginning of January, on an average to normal year. Uh, so, you know, as long as the, the, the soil is workable, you can plant. But, you know, right now the ground is dry. If, it were, if the weather were to change and it, and it got very wet and the, sound, and the, and the soil would become saturated, uh, you've got to be careful with, um, with soil compaction. You know, one, if you're planting and, 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 and your garden because of heavy rain has gotten very muddy, um, you know, there's this air transfer that goes on between plant roots and, and, and the soil. And you just want to make sure, the only thing I would re strongly rec recommend is make sure that the ground isn't too wet when, when you're about to plant your new shrub that you just bought on sale. Well, what about when it's really dry as uh, it can be right now? Right. Uh, well, that's when you got to, you know, bring out the hose and water uh -huh. on a regular basis. I mean, we've been, we here at Native Landscapes have been planting all summer, but at the same time, 
during the heat of the drought, you know, we're setting out soaker hose, we're setting out timers. I mean, we basically didn't put anything in the ground this summer unless it was accompanied by an irrigation system because, you know, if you're not watering uh, your new landscape or your new plants on a regular basis, um, it's, it can be detrimental and can be a big waste of money. And Carl, you had another question? question? Yeah, my other question is, are hardy mums perennials? If I plant them, do I have to replant next year or do they come up by themselves? You know, this is a question that I get asked all the time, and the the the, the straight answer to that is it all depends on the winter. Uh, if we get a winter where it's mild like it was last year, most of these mums are going to come back. If we get a winter like we get every 10 years or so where we get 10, 20 below zero, it's probably going to get into the plant and kill it. But there are certain, it seems to me, planting mums over the year. There are certain mums that are hardier than others. A lot of the lavenders and reds and yellows seem to be a little bit more hardier than the other colors. And if I may suggest, if you wanted to go with more of a, a native fall flower to try some of the asters, which flower the same time as the mums, and they're, they're, they're just as nice, but at the same time you'll be attracting a lot of the native bumblebees that will start coming to your garden because they just love the mums before they go into dormancy. Great. Okay. Thank you so much. Yes, thanks a lot. And, and thank you. Uh, I don't know if we have any more callers right now, but uh, I'll, I'll ask, uh, are you on the air, B.A.? You're on the air. I guess I not. I, I think yeah, I, hi. Uh, okay. Hi, I'm Paul. Yes, hi, I'm Paul. Living here in Brooklyn. And uh, I was also recently up that way, up away, away, in, uh, in Maine, actually. And it was beautiful uh, just two weeks ago. Uh, that's when it, it wasn't peak, but it was getting there or portending to. Anyway. Oh, did you find it dry up in Maine also? Like I found okay, it in Northern I was New on Hampshire. Georgetown Island, if you know where that is, just south of Bath. And uh, they ha they have a, a Smokey the Bear sign, and it's uh, every day I went by it, it said uh, fire danger high. <laughs> so I assume it's very dry. And it my is, cousin and has, who, who lives that area hasn't the coast. gotten rain yet either, so it's not getting any. It's getting drier. Uh, yeah. Well, there was a, a torrential rainstorm on Wednesday a week ago, and uh, I was heading back down uh, in that storm, but. Uh, other than that, it didn't rain. I, w I was coming from Belfast area at that point. And it, the colors were good all the way up and down the coast, kind of. And I, I guess that means what you said about uh, dryness, driving uh, more intense colors. Is, is that what you said? Um, correct, or, or? Well, the, the cold, uh, the 20-degree the, the, the cold really uh, gets the colors going. But... When it gets dry like that, believe it or not, the colors get a little bit muted. You know, the huh. trees would rather, if, if you look up on the hills around, uh, around where I am right now, uh, you know, a lot of the trees did go into color, but they've also turned brown now, and they almost look burnt on the hills. Huh. Um, and that's what happens when it gets really dry as the color starts to come out. Some trees are under a lot of stress, and they really don't go into their brightest colors. Uh, it's a little bit muted, but you know the colors this year were, uh, were were very good for the most part everywhere. I've always wondered why the colors. Well, I understand yellow 
the, the leaves turning yellow, but why do so many turn red, which is the complementary color to green? Well, you know, Leonard, it's, it's funny because, you know, there's, there's a few trees that I always kind of key in on every year because, you know, they're just spectacular. A lot of the ginkgos up here and a lot of the, uh, the maples. And you'll what I've noticed over the years is, you know, certain trees, depending on the fall weather and depending on how moisture, how much moisture there is in the ground, will turn a different color each year. You know, if we get a year like we had this year where we get this early frost and, 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 and the leaves are just cut off and the pigment, you know, the chlorophyll is cut off out of the leaves and, you know, the green is gone and it's left with, other, with, with whatever other pigment is in the leaves. Some years, some of these trees will turn fire engine red. The next year, they'll turn pumpkin orange. And the next year, they'll turn golden yellow. You know, it, it, you know I don't know the answer on why they can change a different color each year, but... It's definitely got to be weather-related. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your call, unless you have something else you wanted to add. I, I just wanted to ask about, uh, I bought these bulbs while I was up there in a local store called Rennie's. I don't know if you know that one. But, the one up uh, in Dover? Uh, no, in Belfast. Oh, okay. No, but go ahead. in Belfast. But anyway, it's, uh, it's the, it says profondeur, which I assume means profundity or depth in the soil mm -hmm. is 11 to 12 centimeters. Is that correct for tulip bulbs? For tulip bulbs, yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. Uh, you want to get them in the ground, you know, once again, uh, before the ground freezes. And, okay. uh, yeah, you should, uh, you know, separate them a little bit. And, uh, you know, tulips, uh, tulips are, fun, are fun to watch come up, you know. And another thing that you want to think about I mean, tulips are great, daffodils are great, hyacinths, you know, they're all beautiful, beautiful bulbs. But there's also a genre of spring bulbs or, or ephemerals, as we call them, that are, you know, the native, what I call the native spring flowering uh, bulbs, like um, the trillium and the bloodroot uh, and the trout okay. lily. You know, this is stuff that you can, you know, buy uh, mail order too. That is, uh, you know, not only very pretty, but, you know, you're bringing in a native flower that's going to sustain oh, yeah. wildlife in the garden. I recognize that name. Very good. Okay. Uh, Thank you for your call. Plant, planting in pots is okay. I mean, I, I don't have that much uh, exposed garden surface. Uh, and you're going to you plant know. the bulbs in the pots? Is that what you're yeah. saying? Yeah. And yeah, like you know. A big pot, like about a 14-degree a uh, diameter. That's perfect. And, you know, another thing you can do if you're planting spring flowering bulbs in a pot is you can put, if you've got uh, extra room in your refrigerator, you can put these containers that you just planted up in spring flowering bulbs huh? uh, in the refrigerator and then pull them out a month or so before Easter, and they'll, they'll, they'll flower or they'll come up early, and, and, and you'll get some Easter flowers, and you'll be forcing the bulbs uh to, to, to flower earlier than, than they're going to flower outside, and that, that always makes for a nice holiday decoration. That's great. Great, great advice. Thank you. And Thank I you so much. Add, get netting. If you're going to do something like what I do, and I'm down here in Brooklyn, get netting, like deer netting or whatever, uh, that, that's industrial approved against uh, does and whatever, but uh, uh, especially squirrels around these parts, and I stake it in over the already planted bulb because they, those squirrels are marauders and they dig up anything and everything for food. So I'm told that. It's tough to do 
gardening in, in, in New York City with, 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 the, with the squirrels everywhere. You know, it's gotten crazy. Yeah, you're right. And now there are rats running. I don't know whether the rats eat that stuff, but since the restaurants are, have uh, cut back, I gather there are an awful lot of rats that used to live off of the uh, whatever was left over that are now out there foraging. Right. Yeah, exactly. So uh, mm. be careful out there. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for your call. You're listening to WBAI in New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm Roger Thopate, and uh, we are taking your calls. But uh, before we go to another call, uh, our number, by the way, is 212-209-2877. This is the time of year that leaves fall and uh, people uh, do all sorts of different things with them. They gather them up, throw them in the garbage or sometimes they burn them. Uh, but you call them nature's mulch. I do, Leonard. And there's a good reason for that, because, you know, if you think about what goes on, you take a walk through the woods this time of year and the leaves are falling down around you and the the forest floor is starting to fill up with leaves. Those leaves, over time, will decompose. And what those leaves become is leaf mold. And leaf mold is one of the best natural fertilizers you could put in your garden. Because as it breaks down, it, it, it breaks down and it, and, it, and it creates mycorrhizal fungi in the soil, which is a fungus that helps a lot of plants uh, retrieve nutrients in the soil. And I'll give you an example of that. If there's mycorrhizal fungi in the soil, and let's say a, a, a beech tree is, is looking for a, a micronutrient like, like copper or, or one of the micronutrients that it needs to sustain its life, it's, it'll send a message. And this, this, this to me is wild. It'll send a message uh, to the roots, and the roots will send a message to the mycorrhizal fungi and the whole network of trees in that neighborhood will will get this message. And if there's any copper or any micronutrient that this tree needs in adjacent soils or in adjacent neighbor soils, it'll bring it back through the network and bring it back to that tree that needs that micronutrient. You know, you talked about a symbiotic relationship. It doesn't get any better than that. And and I, last year we did a show about how trees communicate and it was fascinating there's a lot of new science being done uh, in regard to that uh, they warn each other if a predator is around <laughs> but uh also uh, as far as the uh the the fallen leaves don't many of our beneficial insects and moths overwinter on all of that leaf litter they sure do leonard and you know one of the big ones i was just reading about the other day is the lunar moth <clears throat> i don't know if anybody's familiar with the lunar moth but uh, this is a moth that's about the size of Mothra. If you're out in your yard and you see a moth uh, about the size of a pigeon, that's a lunar moth. Wow. And it, it can, um, you know, it, 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 you know, once it's done for the season, you know, it's got to get out of the cold like everybody else. And many of these insects and moths, uh, you know, uh, hibernate or, or spend their winters in, 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 the, uh, in the leaves because the leaves are such a great insulator. So rather than going through your garden and your landscape and, blow, and taking your blower and blow all the leaves out of the landscape, you know, leave some of the leaves in the garden so that you're doing your job from an ecological landscape s 
standpoint to keep a lot of these, you know, native insects alive and well through the winter months. And, uh, you know, when it comes to the lawn area, you know, you don't have to really take all the leaves out of the lawn either. What, What I recommend doing is taking the bulk out. In other words, if you've got a big maple tree in your yard and Next thing you know, all the leaves are falling out. You've got two and three feet of, of leaves in your yard. Yes, blow, blow the bulk of them out, but, you know, leave six, eight inches of leaves on the lawn. And then, you know, when you take your mower through, you can crunch that up. And, you know, that acts as a little bit of an organic, a little bit of a, a stabilizer to help build the soil for your lawn. So, you know, it's a win-win for just about any living creature on your property. But we are, many people are spraying insecticides to get rid of the insects. Uh, are there good insects and bad insects, or do the insecticides, are, are they really a, a, a big mistake unless you are running a huge farm? Well, you know, insecticides, you know, many of them just don't target the pest that you're trying to get rid of. A, Many of them is a, a, a broad spectrum uh, killer. Killers, so you know, they they go after everything. And I'll tell you an interesting story that happened to me a while back. You know, I have a customer who's got these huge, must be hundred year old apple trees in front of his property, and for years they didn't produce any apples. And he called me up one day and he said, you know, how come my my trees don't produce any apples? And I said. Are they in flower right now? And it was a beautiful sunny day. And he says, yeah. I said, well, let me come over right now and see what's going on. Well, you know, I went over uh, to his house. And, you know, I remember as a kid getting up into apple trees or fruit trees. And I remember the tree basically humming with pollinators and bees and insects going from, from flower to flower pollinating these trees. They were very, they were little and nothing going from tree to tree. And, you know, he happened to be in an area where, you know, everybody puts down a blanket pesticide, you know, to keep the bugs away. But, you know, that's that's not the right application, you know. You know, this whole native plant concept, Leonard, you know, it, 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 it invites beneficial insects. You know, there are more good than bad insects out there. And if it weren't for insects, we wouldn't be able to eat. We'd starve to death because they're the ones that are pollinating all the fruits that, and vegetables that, that, that sustain us. So at the same time, what we need to think about is, you know, what are we targeting? Is it, does, is it really necessary to bring the sprayer out? Will mechanical methods work? In other words, if I got a soapy solution in a cup or a bowl, can I just pick the bugs off of the tree or shrub or, or, or flower and just throw them in that and then dump them down the, down the drain? You know, I, I, I think there's very good alternatives to, to, to ripping out the, the, uh, the pesticides and just doing a blanket pesticide application on your property because many of these pesticides are not good for you. You're listening to WBAI in New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. And we are taking listener calls at 212-209-2877. Land. 
We're back with Pete Morosky, an environmentalist and nursery man and the owner of Native Landscapes and Garden Center in Pauling, New York. And we're taking your calls at 212-209-2877. Should we uh, try to take another call? BAI, you're on the air. Hello? Yes, hi, you're on the air. Hi, how are you? Um, I think your last discussion might fit in perfectly with my concern. I'm an avid gardener and I'm always mulching. Um, but I'm concerned, am I being overly cautious by thinking not to mulch any food scraps that are from plants grown in other parts of the world, because that might introduce invasive microorganisms? Interesting question. That is a great question. Um, you know, when you say mulch, it sounds like you're doing quite a bit of composting. And, you know, generally speaking, if you're using vegetable or food scraps, uh, you know, staying away from dairy and meats, um, you know, generally speaking, if, if you're letting these uh, scraps decompose fully, um, you're probably not doing uh, uh, any damage. But, you know, if you got a compost bin in and you are composting, you know, don't add add some leaves to that compost bin or add some native shrub uh, plant parts and, and mix them in with your compost because, you know, that's always going to help when it comes to planting, uh, you know, in your garden. Uh, what kind of gardener are you? Are you a vegetable garden gardener or are you a landscape gardener? Or, you know, what are your interests? I'm a, I'm a, I'm a home gardener. Uh, as a kid in the Bronx, my parents sent me to the Bronx Botanical Garden. When we moved to Long Island, they called me the green thumb because everything I touched lived. So oh, okay. I have a lot of knowledge of just, you know, I'm saying, you know, I don't even scrap like an avocado shell that was grown in California or anywhere else because of the micro, you know, the microorganisms that are not native to this area. You know, I'm in Nassau County. Yeah, the, you know, microbes are, you know, uh, you know, you're absolutely right. When it, when it comes to plant litter and what to mulch around your plant, it's a good rule of thumb to go with plant litter or, or, or leaves or decomposed uh, uh, plant matter that is very close or the same plant that, that, that you're working with. In other words, in, in, you know, in the landscape uh, around your house, you know, it's okay to use mulch or compost that you've, uh, that you've created. But if you can't create enough and you, and you need to go elsewhere to, create, to, to bring in a little bit more of a mulch to, to keep the weeds down, to keep the moisture in the ground, you know, go with a mulch that's a little bit more natural. Some of these natural brown mulches over the, you know, I'm starting to see these red mulches, these orange mulches, these, you know, the, you know, the problem with a lot of these colored mulches, in my opinion, is first of all, you don't know what kind of wood they're using. You know, I'm hearing rumors that, you know, they're using you know, pressure-treated pallets and then dyeing them. I mean, that's oh, really nothing for your soil. What you want to do is you want to, you know, as natural and as organic as you can get in your soil because, you know, not only are, 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 you, are, are you sustaining your, your garden, but you're feeding it at the same time. And mixing that, those, that compost that you have that, you, that, that you're making in your compost bin with a, a shredded bark mulch with some leaf mold, with a little bit of chips that, from native trees uh, that are growing in your area, you're going to find a big difference in, in, the, in, in, in how hardy and how green and how healthy a lot of your landscape plants will grow 
uh, without using synthetic fertilizer that is really just creating, you know, drug addict plants in our, in our landscape. I see. So it's a general rule of thumb, stay local even with food scraps. And if I, let's say, I, you know, I bought something at the market that was a plant from Europe, let's say, and those plants are not native to here, in general, perhaps don't, don't uh, mulch them. Don't put them in the compost pile, is what you're saying. Exactly right, you know. And here's another example when it comes to trees. Norway maples that you can find growing all over New York City, especially in Central Park, when these, when these maple leaves decompose and, and become leaf litter, you know, they don't make the same microorganisms as, let's say, a silver maple or, or a red maple or, or a beech or an oak. You know, those, the microorganisms that are created by decomposed leaves or organic matter from those native trees are going to, you know, exponentially help your, your, your landscape rather than bringing in leaves, as you say, and, and organic matter from trees and shrubs uh, from Asia and, and Europe. I see. Thank you so much. Welcome. Thank you for your call. I've always wondered why you can't use cheese and and uh, meat scraps in your uh, in your compost because they do it in commercial composts. Yeah, you know, I, I'm just not the type of person that wants to put my fingers through you know a, a, a whole bunch of maggots in order to get my um, you know get my garden to grow. It's just it's not. They don't break down as quickly. Uh, you know, it takes a while. You know, the smell will drive you out of your yard. It's just something, you know, mm. that gardeners don't do. Okay. Well, some commercial farmers use them, obviously. Um, you say that this is the best time of, of the year to renovate a lawn. How, how do you suggest that we renovate a lawn? Well, here's what lawns love. Lawns love sunny, warm days and cool nights with a lot of rain. Okay, that's why lawns, that's why we brought lawns over from Europe and England. When we first came uh, to North America, one of the first things we did uh, when building these big plantations and these estates along the East Coast was we had to have a lawn in, in front of the house. Because There's no indigenous grass? Yeah, lawn is, is grass. Rye yeah, but I mean, grass. did we bring grass? We bring grass seed from from England and France, or do, did we have indigenous grasses that we just uh, use to create uh, European style lawns? No, uh, sedges are the only grasses we had that grow short, and they weren't quite lawn grasses. Most of the lawn grasses came from Europe uh, that you see throughout the country right now, and you know it's just. You know, this is why there's such a push on getting rid of a lot of our lawns. Uh, but back to your original question, you know, the reason why this is a good time of year to renovate the lawns is because the weather is right for it. And, and, and this is the time of year you want to use, depending on your site, you know, there's a lot of variables, depending on what kind of grass you want to use. If you've got a very sunny site, you can use what they call a, no, a northern blend grass of rye fescues and bluegrasses. Um, but if you've got a shady site you want to use something a little bit more tolerant to shade but now's the time to get in there you know get your grade going top dress with a little bit of topsoil and seed and, and seed your lawn now the reason why you see a lot of people putting limestone and calcium down on the lawn this time of year is because lawns like a ph uh, a little bit alkaline uh you know where 
most rainy climates have a very acidic pH. Uh, lawns, uh, you know, you try to grow a lawn in a pH of 5.5, it's going to be a little bit of a struggle, and you're going to get the moss to grow a little bit faster than the blade grass. So what you want to do is you want to slowly lime the soil and bring that pH up uh, eventually after a couple of years. You know, one of the problems I see with a lot of homeowners is that, you know, they, they look at the box and they say, well, you know, if I put X amount of pounds in per 100 square feet, it's going to raise the pH, you know, a half a point. You know, why don't I double that and raise the pH a point? Can't do that because you'll shock the, you'll shock the soil, you'll kill the grass. So, you know, it, it, the, you, need, you need to follow the chemistry and make it a little bit, you know, bring the, bring the pH up slowly over a period of years and, and, and you won't shock the soil. And um, you'll also create a nicer lawn. Also, raise the height of cut on your lawn a little bit, uh, you know, creates a healthier lawn. And also, you know, I know we need lawns to play soccer and baseball and, you know, croquet and badminton and wiffle ball. But, you know, you only need a little bit of lawn. In those areas, you know, if, if you've got three to five acres, you only need a half an acre of lawn. Turn those, those other three to five acres into wildflower meadow. And it's so easy to do, Leonard. I mean, that's what we're doing all the time now. I mean, there's an open window of opportunity. Once again, we're following the rules of nature. And there's an open window of opportunity to bring, to, to, to start these meadows. And now is the time between August 20th and November 1st is the time to cut these lawns down very low and add these, these, these native wildflower meadow mixes. And let me tell you something. You do something like that, you're going to bring in all kinds of butterflies and hummingbirds. And to me, it's a quality of life issue, and people love it. Okay, let's get to, to talk a bit about the, the native plants that you've been uh, referring to over the course of not only this show, but all your previous visits. Um, why should we just, uh, why do you always recommend planting native plants? Uh, is it because uh, they've already adapted to the soils and the environment and, and feed the wildlife uh, that are, are, are indigenous to this area? You know, that's, that's the story, Leonard. And, you know, let's take, a, let's take a step back in time a little bit. I mean, here we are in North America. We live in the New World. You know, I mean, this continent has only been settled in the last three to 500 years. And if we were able to go back before European settlement, you know, when the Indians or when the Native Americans were the only human, humans wandering around these deep woods up here, you know, you would find, you know, these vast tracts of, 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 of native trees, shrubs, wetlands, and everything that you would find in a lot of these areas are plants that are indigenous to this part of the world. Now, why is that so important? Because a lot of our insects and birds, there's, you know, because they've been living with each other for all these centuries, there's this very important symbiotic relationship that exists between plants, animals, and insects. And, you know, when we start bringing in plants from other parts of the world, uh, you know, in areas that have similar climates to the climate we have here in eastern United States, as, you know, you find in Japan and China and in Europe, you know, you're creating what we call dead zones in the environment. Why? A lot of these birds and insects haven't adapted to the nuts 
and the leaves that are on these plants because they were never there before we started moving plants around the planet. And not only that, it's created a lot of problems with diseases. I mean, you look at the Dutch elm disease. Of course, that's a disease that came from a, uh, from a parasite and, and, and a fungus that existed in Europe. You know, uh, the chestnut blight. You know, there was no such thing as a chestnut blight. And chestnuts were 60% of our forest up until about 100 years ago. And now the chestnuts are gone. And, and it's all because, you know, we're moving plants around the planet. You know, you look at the hemlocks now. The hemlocks are next to be the ones that are going to be borderline extinct because we've got the hemlock woolly adelgid and the hemlock scale that are killing, uh, you know, a lot of the hemlocks, you know, in, here and in New York City. So, you know, it, it, we got to stay regional, we got to stay native, and that's going to create a healthier environment for not only the natural world, but for us, because, you know, this helps keep clean water. And, you know, clean water is, is what we need, uh, you know, to survive, you know, here and now. So how regional uh, do you recommend that we be? Uh, should we, uh, can we uh, plant things that are, are on the are east of of the Mississippi. Uh, there are wonderful plants in California. Should we just ignore them or not plant them? Well, uh, you know that's how much, you know that all depends on how much of a purist you are. You know, I mean, I've looked at the science behind this, and a lot of people have, and it's, you know, you you don't hear much of it going on, but you know, you're starting to see books coming out about it. And, you know, 30, 20, 30 years, no one was talking about this. And now it's so important because our natural world is, is, you know, you're hearing about all these insects and birds on the verge of extinction. And why is that? Because they're starving to death. You know, we come through in these subdivisions and we tear down trees, we tear down meadows, and we, and we put up parking lots, and we put up plants that are indigenous to other parts of the world, and the bugs starve to death because they have nothing to eat and, and, and they've lost, you know, all their, you know, natural uh, uh, stuff. So, you know, it's, it's so important, okay, when, 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 when we're planting our landscape. And, and this, is, this is where it becomes fun, too, Leonard, that, you know, there's a lot of websites you can go on that will tell you, you know, what is native to your county, to your state, to your town, and maybe if, if, you want, if, if you want to play around a little bit, you could find the plants that are truly indigenous to your part of the world and plant them. But mm. go back to your question, how do we define native plants here at Native Landscapes? Uh, well, these are plants that will survive in our climate that were here growing before European settlement east of the Mississippi and north of Florida uh, that we can grow in our garden. You know, milkweed is a great example. You know, I, I talked about the great twig dogwood, red twig dogwood, oaks. I mean, you can find white oaks growing on the Canadian border and down in the swamps of, of Florida. I mean, you know, a lot of these native plants have adapted to many different climates along the East Coast. And, uh, you know, they'll survive uh, and, and they'll thrive and they'll feed wildlife just about anywhere. And the milkweed, of course, are also good for the butterflies. Uh, I'm going to try to sneak one more call in. BAI, you're on the air. 
Yes, good afternoon, and thank you for your fantastic programs. Um, pertaining to with the COVID uh, situation uh, transpiring currently, and uh, my being a office worker and a, an apartment dweller, what uh, what plants would you suggest that are ex extremely efficient in uh, clean, cleaning the air? Also think about perhaps doing something creative in the schools as well, based on what experts like your guests can suggest to us. Thank you. For That's a that. really interesting question. Pete? Uh, could you repeat the question? Because I barely she, heard she want, She wants to know uh, if you're an apartment dweller, uh, are there plants that clean the air, especially in, in light of our current situation where we're concerned about COVID? And also there are. It might be utilized as well. There are. There are, you know, there are many plants that clean your air. I, I know off the top of my head, spider plants are one of those plants. I think Falsavalia is another one of those plants. I would recommend going online and, 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 and getting a group of those plants. And another thing you want to, you want to go down and talk to, to, to your local florist and find out what they would recommend. I mean, indoor plants are not my expertise, but uh, a lot of, you know, you go down to your local uh, uh, florist and they'll guide you on what direction you can go because, you know, you got to look at a couple variables here. You know, what kind of light do you have? Do you have direct sunlight? Do you have diffuse sunlight? Is it a shady apartment? Does your apartment face north, south, east, or west? And once we hone in on your light, then we can bring in plants that will thrive and also clean your air. And give you oxygen. And give you oxygen. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much. Should we try to get another call in? Okay, let's try BAI, you're on the air. Are you there? Okay. Nope, no, no one. Okay, no more calls. Uh, but uh, I did want to get to a couple of other uh, things before you leave. Um, there are, uh, I mentioned that some people burn their leaves, which can be rather dangerous right now. Uh, what are the, some of the other suggestions that you make? Because uh, uh, a lot of people are adding fire pits to their, their property if they have that kind of space. Is that a good idea? Uh, it, it is, Leonard, as long as you do it in a safe way. You know, since the COVID outbreak and everybody's still basically on lockdown and home, you know, people have, many people that I've talked to have turned their property into kind of a you know, club med type situation where, you know, they can't go on vacation anymore. So let's bring the vacation home. And one of the things that I am talking to a lot of customers about, you know, we'll start with, you know, the fire pit, you know, uh, I'm a big fan of fire pits. And as you, as you mentioned, Leonard, you know, there is a, you know, there's high fire warning. So, you know, mm -hmm. what you need to do is you need to create a fire pit that's not going to create a forest fire. And that is, you know, common sense will tell you to, to, to put the fire pit in an area that's away from trees and shrubs. You know, I tend to build fire pits a little bit below grade and line them with stone so that the fire basically sits below grade and, and, and it can't crawl out onto my lawn and, 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 and create a, a problem. Uh, you know, another thing I'm seeing out there from trends in landscaping is, is pools. These pool companies can't keep up with the amount of, you know, pools that they're putting in because, you know, people can't go to the beach. Keep, people, you know, aren't allowed to go to the lake in, at the moment. So bring, the, bring, bring the, the water to the house. And one of the things that I'm seeing out there when it comes to pools is these natural pools. And it, it, they're kind of neat in the sense that 
you know, they almost look like a pond where there is a filtration system, but that filtration system goes through uh, a, a bunch of plants, and that's what cleans the water. And, and, and the reason why they've become so popular is because they're so much healthier than chlorinated pools, and they're a lot easier to take care of. And you can keep them open all winter and play hockey on them. I mean, it's just a, it, 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 it's a, it's a, it's a great additive or addition to your property that you can use uh, year-round. You know, and people are really getting into their outdoor living space, creating these unbelievable outdoor kitchens because everybody's spending more time outside. Um, you know, I'm getting a lot of calls for edible landscapes where people want to set up you know, uh, fruit trees and edible shrubs, uh, elderberries and beech plums, and, and, and not make a separate garden out off the property because they don't have the room for it, but incorporate a lot of these plants into the landscape around the house. Instead of using vinca uh, or, 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 or uh, pachysandra around the house, you know, use a strawberry as a ground cover. You know, there's so many plants and things out there that you can do that are that are not so traditional that, you know, are so much fun to add to the garden. And next thing you know, you got, you know, the vegetable garden. There's no need to have a separate vegetable garden. You know, plant your carrots and plant your 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 radishes right in right in the landscape. And, you know, mm. a lot of times if, if you leave a few and don't eat them, you, you know, you're feeding wildlife. And some of these plants, like carrots, have a beautiful flower if you, if you, if you let them go, uh, you know, uh, 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 through their whole growing process. And a big, I see a lot of people doing container gardening right now. You know, these natural containers that you could put on your back deck and porch. And, you know, you could do everything from vegetables and, and zucchini and tomatoes to, to, to beautiful dwarf conifers and bonsais. I mean, you know, there's so much you can do with container plants to fill in gaps on your patio. Now, and, Pete, uh, you know, uh, we, we're pretty much out of time, Pete, but I do want to remind people that Pete Morosky is an environmentalist and nursing man and the owner of Native Landscapes and Garden Center on Route 22 in Pauling, New York, right uh, next to uh, an entrance to the Appalachian Trail. Um, and uh, it's always a pleasure having you on our show. We'll uh, speak to you soon again, okay? Thank you, Leonard. And that brings us to the end of today's show. If you're new to our program and would like to hear more, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as a podcast on iTunes and anywhere else podcasts are available. And you can also find links to all of our past shows on our website, Leonard Lopate at Large on uh, com. If there's anything you'd like to tell me about today's show or about any of our past shows, just want to say hello, you can reach me by email at leonardlopate at wbai.org. Uh, and a reminder that we are doing, uh, we're still fundraising. If you want to support BAI, give us a call at 516-620-3602 or go online to give to wbai.org. Uh, we hope that you'll tune in again tomorrow when Pulitzer Prize and National Book Award winner Tim Wiener We'll discuss his latest book, The Folly and the Glory, America, Russia, and Political Warfare, 1945 to 2000. We'll see you then.